I'm going to miss this series because I really enjoyed this series, but today we're wrapping up our Investigating Jesus series. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. I know, right? Yeah. Palm Sunday is also a great, it's one of my favorite times, one of my favorite messages, so I'm looking forward to sharing that with you as well. In this series, Investigating Jesus, How We Know and Why We Follow, we've been asking the question, how do we know there's anything to the story of Jesus and why should we follow him? Because the answers to these questions are important because the credibility of Christianity is dependent upon the identity of one individual, the person we know of as Jesus of Nazareth. This means that with regard to the veracity of, the the truthfulness of the Christian faith, the most important question that we have to consider comes down to this. Are the accounts of Jesus' life found in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament, are those accounts reliable? Because if even one of them is reliable, we need to take note If even one of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus is reliable, then Jesus is worth following, and Jesus is worth devoting our lives to. So today, we're going to see how Luke's gospel ends, and then we're going to see what it means for all of us. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for gathering us together here today as your ecclesia, as your community of Followers, Father, thank you for giving us this ability to carve out some time in our week to come together as the body of Christ, to study the Bible, your word, to understand it better, and to understand how you would have us apply it to our lives. God, we ask that you bless our time together today and that we might walk out of here today a little bit closer to you than we walked in. We love you, God. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this series, remember what we've been doing is we're walking our way through the gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, so third book in the New Testament. And as we were reading, right up front, Luke makes sure to tell us what he was doing. Luke was writing a well-documented, detailed, evidence-supported account of the life of Jesus. Remember, Luke was a physician. He was a doctor. He was a person who was focused on details and focused on specificity. And so he was able to bring that into his gospel that he wrote for us. He was sharing with us events that happened in his lifetime, the facts about which he gleaned, he was able to find out about by interviewing actual eyewitnesses to each of the events. Now, Luke explained to us that he was one of many people who tried to write such an account. He didn't tell us what many meant. We don't know how many, but many. He was one of many people who tried, who endeavored to provide a similar account, and, doc- and then he documented what he compiled along with what we call the book of Acts. He put it all together. He included it in one writing. We broke it up, or it was broken up many, many hundreds of years later into the Gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts. Now, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are exceptionally detailed and remarkably accurate. And from this, we can reasonably surmise that Luke would have been quick to tell us 
if the story hadn't ended the way that it had ended. Because if that was the case, there would be no story to tell. There would be no story to tell. Because it would have meant that Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. If the story didn't end the way that it ended, it would have meant that Jesus was just another wannabe Messiah. Another wannabe Messiah who went out of the way to tell other wannabe Messiahs in Judea. Instead, what happened at the end of Jesus' story, as told by Luke, actually makes sense and creates context for everything that happened in Jesus' whole story. So here's how the beginning of the end goes. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. This is the New International Version translation. You can look in any version you like on your tablet, on your phone, in your Bible, or follow along with me on the screen. When they came to the place called the Skull, we know of it also as Golgotha, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Now, let's begin with a bit of an observation, interesting observation. None of the gospel writers provide any details about crucifixion. You ever notice that? They just say crucifixion. Why do you think that is? Well, it's probably because for Luke's audience, in Luke's day, nobody needed this to be described. Nobody needed to hear any details. The people to whom Luke was writing knew the details of crucifixion quite well. Because the Romans frequently used crucifixions. Now, the crucifixion was invented by the Persians, the Iranians, the Iranians nowadays. It was advanced by the Greeks, but it was the Romans that perfected the practice. Crucifixion was a way to execute a person by inflicting as much pain and torture as possible. Death by crucifixion was actually a very painful death by suffocation. That's interesting. That's what killed you. Suffocation. As the person was hung on that cross, gravity did its work on the person's body, and the person's body weight would begin to tear at the nails driven through the hands or the wrists and hammered through the feet. And as the person hung there, their breathing was gradually and thoroughly compromised as the person became less and less able to use their feet to push themselves up to expand their lungs. That's why they typically would break a prisoner's legs so that they couldn't push themselves up and prolong their death. Now, the Romans used crucifixion as a way of inflicting terror on the people over whom they ruled. And it was a way of applying a deterrent to would-be criminals, revolutionaries, or political rabble-rousers. By the way, interestingly, the Romans could not crucify Roman citizens. Now, to help us get a more accurate picture, unlike the expressions of the crucifixions that we've all seen in the movies and on television and in various artistic media or mediums, the crosses weren't actually way up in the air. We had to kind of look up to see what's going on. The crosses were actually set in a way that would put the body much, much lower, that made the convicted person's face sit right about at face level or eye level with anybody walking past that cross. That meant that it would have been impossible for a passerby, for somebody walking past somebody on a cross, not to notice the anguish on their face. It would be impossible for anybody to walk past one of these people and not be forced to consider that image before they committed a crime themselves. For that reason, 
Luke didn't have to elaborate on what the crucifixion was all about. They knew exactly what Luke was talking about when he said that Jesus was crucified. All right, Luke followed that with something unexpected. He followed that, if we didn't already know the story, with something we wouldn't believe. But it's the exact thing to which Jesus invited us to. And it's possible that when Luke heard it, he struggled to believe it. So remember, Luke was not an eyewitness himself. Rather, Luke compiled eyewitness accounts after interviewing people who were. It was almost like Luke was doing a documentary. Think about it that way. You know, you watch documentaries, right? What do you do? You weren't there when the incident took place, when the murder took place, when the robbery took place. So you go around, you talk to people who were there, you talk to eyewitnesses, you talk to people who documented it, talk to people who saw everything, and that's what Luke was doing. So Luke talked to Peter, the apostle Peter, and he talked to Jesus' little brother James. Remember, James is Jesus' little brother. He talked to John, and he talked to the apostle James as well. Luke also talked to Mary, Jesus' mother. And when one or all of them told him what Jesus said next... Luke might have just gone, you've got to be kidding me. He might have shaken his head. He might have cleared his ears out or did one of those things to make sure he was hearing everything correctly. Well, of course he was. And though it was shocking, what Jesus said from the cross was right on brand with Jesus. What he said from the cross was in the exact same vein, in the exact same tone as everything else he had ever done and ever said all throughout his earthly ministry. It was the same kind of thing he invited all of his followers to follow him in doing. It was the same kind of thing that Jesus invites us to do. It was simultaneously both troubling and freeing. And through it, Jesus invites us to refuse to be like the people who don't like us. Did you get that? Jesus invites us to refuse to be just like the people who don't like us. He also invites us to refuse to be threatened by people who threaten us. This is huge. Jesus told us, don't let them scare you. Don't let them threaten you. Don't buy into it. Refuse to be like people who take out their anger and their insecurities on us and refuse to consider someone an enemy because they consider us enemies. That's revolutionary right there. That's totally counter to human nature. Through what he said next, Jesus invited us into a way of living that never fails to astound and humble everyone who's exposed to it. What Jesus invited us into is that powerful. And when we practice this out in the wild, it has the power to cause the world to stop and stare. All right, I've set it up. So what did Jesus say that was so very remarkable? Here's what he said from the cross. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So let's think about this for a second. How is it possible that they didn't know what they were doing? How is it possible? The people who crucified Jesus were essentially executioners. They knew what they were doing. They did it before. How did they not know what they were doing? What could Jesus have meant by that? Well, let's keep going. Let's see if things become a bit more clear. 
Now, their next action indicated that to them, this was just another routine crucifixion. So while Jesus was forgiving them, what did they do? What did the executioners do? This is Luke 23, 34. They divided up his clothes by casting lots, by, by rolling the dice. That's what they did. In those days, clothing was expensive. You didn't have shine, and you couldn't buy stuff from China, and it wasn't cheap, and you throw it away after you wear it once. Clothing was expensive. And so the executioners, they had a job perk, and they were exercising one of their job perks. They got to keep the clothes. They got to keep the clothes of the people that they killed. So you get their clothes, you wash the blood off them, and all the sweat, and all, the, uh, all that stuff, and hey, you got a nice new shirt, nice toga. That added even more insult to the injury that Jesus was suffering. No, like he was so insignificant to them that he says, oh, Father, forgive them. And they're like, oh, I want that. I want those shoes. I want those sandals. Do I get the sandals? Are you a size 12? No, right? And not only that, Jesus watched them do it. He saw them do it. How could he possibly think that they should be forgiven? But that's what happened. Now, by any measure, this looked like another complete and utter defeat of Jesus. This looked like a huge win for the bad guys, for his enemies. And I said another, because of what happened when they'd come to arrest him earlier. He didn't resist them either. He just rolled over. His disciples, if you'll remember, they tried to resist the arrest. Remember, Jesus actually had to scold Peter for defending him and told Peter, put your sword away. That's not what we do. Jesus explained to his disciples that he had come to do something much more significant than just stay out of trouble. Much more significant than to just take down some Roman soldiers. Jesus came to demonstrate a new way to resist. So when he didn't even resist his own crucifixion, his followers unfollowed him. We thought our generation invented unfollowing No, his followers unfollowed him, and they ran for the hills. They were utterly shocked by his lack of response, but they shouldn't have been because they were with him for the previous three years. And Jesus kept on doing pretty much the same thing. He consistently told his followers that if they were going to follow him, they needed to do what he's doing. They needed to act like him. And that notion clearly made them very uneasy and very uncomfortable because that just wasn't the way that people are supposed to respond to attacks. And we still feel the same way today. We still think that we have to punch back. We still think that we have to fight fire with fire. Quite frankly, that's why so many of us believe in Jesus So many more of us prefer that over choosing to follow Jesus. You see, believing is cheap, and believing is easy. Believing doesn't require us to do anything differently than we're already inclined to do it. But following, following is difficult. Following has a cost, and following will cost us. That's why Jesus had so many admirers, and so few followers. Now's a good time for me to ask you this question. Which one are you? Are you a Jesus admirer? Or are you a Jesus follower? Because listen up. Following Jesus? Following the Jesus way is tough. And following the Jesus way is uncomfortable. And in many ways, 
Jesus' way feels almost un-American, doesn't it? But when you see it happen in real life, when you see somebody following the Jesus way in real life, when you see what it looks like when a follower of Jesus gets it, and then they conduct themselves the way that Jesus did and the way that Jesus instructed us to do, it is simply breathtaking. And it cuts through the darkness of this world. And people notice. People take note. And it doesn't look weak. It looks more powerful than anything we can fathom. When we see a person in an unbelievable, unimaginable, unfathomable situation respond in a way that reflects the way, that reflects the way of a true Jesus follower, we can't help but be impacted by it. Now, there are people who, around the world, every single day, live as true disciples of Jesus. And we never hear about these people. They're the unsung hero, the quiet minority. But every so often... We get to witness a person who does it, and it never leaves us. We never forget about it. Do you all remember a man by the name of Anthony B. Thompson? I'll bet you actually do remember him, although you might not realize it. You might not know his name, but let me give you the background. In 2015, Pastor Thompson, his wife Myra, and eight of her friends were gunned down by a white supremacist, whom I will not name, after a Bible study in their church. Their church was Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. The shooter was ultimately convicted of murder and sentenced at the federal level to death and at the state level to nine consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. You understand why they do that? They do that so that if there's ever an appeal or anything like that, you've got to do it nine times and nobody does it nine times. Now, can you imagine anything worse than that story? In a church Bible study, the pastor's wife and all those other people were gunned down. But check this out. A mere 48 hours after his wife and his church people, his parishioners, his friends were murdered, the Reverend Thompson went to the bond hearing for the accused killer. Now, you might think, huh, this guy must be a huge wimp, Reverend Thompson. But he wasn't one. He wasn't a pushover. He was a man's man. He was a Navy vet. He was a retired parole officer. And yet at the bond hearing for the mass murderer who gunned down his wife and his friends in open court, Andy Thompson forgave his wife's murderer and then, well, I'm going to let him tell you, so check out the video. I got up, and I said, son, I forgive you. My family forgives you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent and confess and give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ. I say so that he can change you change your ways and no matter what happens to you you will be okay do that and you'll be better off than you are right now and after I did that I experienced a peace like no other now watch the video from the bond here on itself I'm talking about 
a peace that surpasses all understanding in Christ Jesus. That peace is real. I preached it several times. I talked to people about it, and I was like, yeah, I got this. But I didn't have it until then. Representative of the family of Myra Thompson. Sir, would you like to make a statement before this court? Please come forward. Your name, sir? Anthony Thompson. Mr. Thompson. I would just like him to know that. Speak up for me. I can definitely hear you. Saying the same thing that was just said. You know, I forgive you, my family forgive you. But we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most Christ so that he can change it and change your ways no matter what happened to you and you'll be okay. Do that and you'll be better off than what you are right now. Thank you, sir. Now when you hear that, if you're anything like I was when I heard it, you thought, hold on a second. That man hopes that his wife's murderer will spend his eternity in the same place that his wife is going to spend her eternity? That, that just seems wrong, doesn't it? That seems weak. But actually, deep down, you know better. Deep down, you know that that took an amazing amount of strength, an amazing amount of integrity, an amazing amount of boldness, and most importantly, an amazing amount of faith. Do you want to know something? Jesus has invited all of us to be like that. Indeed, Jesus died being like that. And Luke documented Jesus' specific invitation to his followers to live a life like that and to demonstrate that kind of response in those moments when life goes the wrong way. So now... I want to jump away from Luke 23 for a minute and go back to Luke chapter 9. And before we start reading, remember that even though we've just seen how Jesus' earthly ministry ended, when his followers heard the things that we're about to talk about from chapter 9, they didn't know. They had no understanding of what Jesus was talking about. They, they had no understanding of why Jesus would say something like that or what he even meant by it. But in Luke... Chapter 9, one day, when Jesus was praying with his disciples, and they were, as usual, listening to him and trying to figure out what the heck he was talking about, Jesus said this to them, Luke 9, 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Essentially, Jesus said, let me explain this to you guys. If any one of you desires to be a part of my movement... And follow me. And they're all like, yeah, Jesus, that's why we've been following you around. That's why we're here. That's what we want to do. Jesus continues. He says, all right, if you want to be one of my people, you want to follow me, you want to be a part of my movement, you're going to have to deny yourselves. What I mean by that is you're going to have to stop thinking about yourselves. You're going to have to say no to yourselves. You're going to have to no longer be ruled by the things that you want. 
your ambition, your appetite, your sense of fairness, your sense of justice. Jesus is saying to them, none of that can matter to you anymore. It can no longer matter to you what society around you tells you to be concerned about. You can no longer act or react like all the people around you. And then Jesus said something that means nothing to us, but meant everything to the people in his audience. Here's what he said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. As we now know, in the first century, if you were carrying a cross, it meant that your independence had come to an end. Any control that you had over your life previously was gone. Carrying a cross, you're about to die in a bad way. And then Jesus added to it. He added a disturbing but important word. A word that sat at the confluence, the coming together of being a believer and being a follower. The difference between someone whose faith in Jesus had been proclaimed by a person who just believed that their faith would one day serve them individually very well, and someone who understood the things that Jesus taught, that their determination to follow Jesus would make a difference in the lives of other people, not just them. What was that word? We continue on in verse 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. Daily. You pray your prayer for salvation one time. God, I know I'm a sinner. God, I know I can't please you on my own. I need a savior. I know that you sent Jesus as my savior. He lived the perfect life. He went to the cross. You put my sins on him so that I don't have to be punished. He died in my place. He came back from the dead. God, I want to follow Jesus. I turn from the way I was. I turn my eyes to Jesus. I make him my Lord and leader. That's the prayer of salvation. But Luke was talking about something very, very different here. And Luke wanted us to know that this difference made all the difference. This was how Jesus' message survived the Roman Empire and how it survived the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Jesus' true followers did indeed take up their crosses and did the things that Jesus called them to do daily. And the movement spread like wildfire. This is a daily decision. We say, God, thy kingdom, not my kingdom. Thy kingdom come every single morning. God, thy will, not my will, thy will be done every single morning as it is in heaven because you, Jesus, are not just my savior and you're not just the forgiver of my sins. You, Jesus, are my Lord and my leader and my king. I submit all that I am to you, all that I have to you. My hands, my feet, my eyes, my ears, my thoughts, my resources, all of what I have to you. I belong to you, Jesus. I am carrying my cross. I am abandoning my own independence. Whoever wants me, my disciple, must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And follow me. That's what following Jesus means. It means to get in line behind Jesus and to move along with Jesus' movement. It means to say no to me and to submit to and follow him. So if you're a believer, is that what you're doing? Are you doing that? Is that what animates you? Is that what motivates you? Is that what gets you out of bed in the morning? 
Or have you defaulted into the typical Christian experience of, God, forgive my sin, bless my family, thank you, God, for my food. The pattern of telling God, listen, I've got the rest covered, but if there's a problem, you're the first person I'll call. That's not the way to change the world. That's not the way to change anything. Aren't you glad you came today? That's good. I know it sounds like a lot. It really does. And it sounded a lot like a lot when Jesus said it too. And it scared a lot of people away. Toward the end of his gospel, Luke documented it. So we go back to uh, verse 23, verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 48. When all the people who gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, the, the crucifixion, they beat their breasts and what they do? They unfollowed. They went away. It was too much for them. They didn't understand that the alternative to the life to which Jesus was inviting them was to live small lives, independent lives, lives that were all about them, lives that were driven by their own appetites, clinging to things that have no power, things that have no eternal significance. Have you ever been to a funeral where they had to make up nice things about the deceased person because there was absolutely nothing else to say? Years ago, I was asked to speak at the funeral of a former co-worker of mine. Worked with this lady who, uh, in, my, in the law firm. I wasn't close with her. Nobody was close with her. Her family wasn't even close with her. In fact, after her death, her husband and her only daughter found out that she had cut them out of their will. And she didn't have a lot of money. Like, she wasn't cutting them out of a fortune. She was just doing it out of spite. When I spoke about her at the funeral... All I could come up with to say was, what can I say about Paula that we all don't already know? That's all I could say. It was sad. That is a true story. It was a horrible legacy. It was a terrible legacy. But Jesus addressed that back in Luke 9 when he said this, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whatever you're clinging to in this life, it's going to lose all its value. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Whoever loses their life for me, whoever loses their life for my kingdom, whoever loses their life for my movement will save it. Whoever loses their life for me will find a life that is worth it. A friend of mine says this, if you only live for yourself, you're only going to have yourself to show for yourself. I like that. Jesus is inviting us to invest our lives, to invest our time, to invest our talent, to invest our resources, so that there will be something more to show. Jesus is inviting us to give our lives away to something other than us, to something bigger than us, so that we'll have something other than us to leave after us. And if that sounds frightening... It's only because we don't yet understand it or because we've never seen it lived out. Because when we've seen what a life lived like that looks like, it's amazing and it's attractive and it's inspirational. And I think it's safe to say each one of us hopes to live a life like that. And that's precisely the life that Jesus is inviting us into. Because whatever you're going, we're trying to hold on to, you're going to lose anyway. 
Jesus is inviting us to something bigger and better and far more significant. Jesus has extended to us the invitation of a lifetime, an invitation to do something noticeable and noteworthy that isn't about us. And then Jesus ended with this question. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? What good is it If somebody gains the whole world, if somebody gets all the things that they wanted, if somebody catches all the dreams that they're chasing, but in the end loses their very selves, what good is it to think that you're winning only to find out when the clock runs out that you weren't even in the game? What good is it? You know what good it is? It's no good. Jesus is not calling us to a better version of the way that we're currently living. Jesus isn't calling us to our current place in our current culture or our current priorities. That's not what he's calling us to, not by a long shot. Jesus was inviting us to something entirely different. Jesus is the king that came to change everything. He's the king who came to turn everything on its head. When Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It wasn't a metaphor, as they thought it was. It was literal. And not just like the 2023 version of literal, which means figurative. I mean literal. And in the end, it became clear. Jesus wanted us to know that if we're not careful, we're going to live puny lives We're going to live lives consumed by our own stuff and our own desires. And Jesus was inviting us to something much, much bigger. Something that would bear fruit. Something that would endure. Something that would last. Something that would last well beyond our lifetime. Well beyond our generation. Jesus was playing an entirely different game. And he was playing to lose. But he won. And he's invited us to play that losing game as well. The game that will result in joy and in peace and in contentment. Jesus invited us to give away that which we can't keep to gain that which we will never lose. Father, forgive them because they think they know what they're doing, but they really don't because they're not even in the game. Just forgive them. The people who were there told Luke how the people who were responsible for Jesus being crucified sneered at him while he was dying. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And then the soldiers came up and mocked him. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't care who Jesus was. They were just pleased to be rid of another Galilean. Next, They offered him wine vinegar, and they said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Well, then save yourself and us. See, what they didn't know and they didn't understand, and what Luke wants us to answer was this. Do you understand? Do you understand now what happened? They didn't know because they hadn't yet seen the end of the story. They didn't know that if Jesus had saved himself, he wouldn't have been able to save them. If Jesus had saved himself, 
he would have forfeited his opportunity to save you and to save me. Jesus was others first, literally to the bloody, bitter, painful, shameful end. This is heavy, isn't it? Let's pause here for a moment. Take a little pop quiz. <clears throat> Put your books under your seat. <laughs> if you know the name of the emperor of Rome on the day Jesus was crucified, if you know the name of the most well-known person in the Roman Empire on the day Jesus was crucified, raise your hand. And by the way, his name, it wasn't Nero and it wasn't Caesar. Okay, a couple of you know. It wasn't Caesar. Caesar's just a title. It's not a name. That's not many hands. Like, we had like two or three hands. His name was Tiberius Caesar. Captain Kirk's middle name. You didn't know his name, but everyone in the world knows the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Tiberius Caesar's but a footnote to the story of the crucifixion of a Galilean day laborer. How about that? So, will it be the kingdoms of this world or the kingdom of God? Who are you going to follow? Who is going to lead you? Who is going to rule over you? And now what? What are you going to follow? What is going to rule over your appetites? What's going to rule over your ambitions? What's going to rule over your goals and your dreams? Now listen, those things are important. And we shouldn't neglect any of them. It's not what I'm saying. But when the rubber meets the road, who has the final say in your life? See, this means that each one of us has a choice to make, has a decision to make. Are you an admirer of Jesus, like just about everybody on the planet? Or are you a follower of Jesus? This is the decision you need to make today and every day. And the people who chose wisely, well, those are the people who changed the world. It's just not right to accept Jesus' invitation while holding on to the pledge deep in your heart that you're only in as long as it's easy or as long as it's convenient or as long as it doesn't require too much of us. See, Jesus hasn't invited you in just so that you'll be forgiven. Jesus has invited us to follow and it's the best invitation you will ever accept. And it'll lead you to live the best life you could ever imagine. And think about this. Why would anyone, why should anyone on the outside of our faith take our faith seriously if we don't follow him with our lives? At the core of the Christian experience isn't just the sinner's prayer so that we can go to heaven when we die. At the core of the Christian experience is also a daily decision to submit to our king. Let's finish the chapter. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Two other gospel writers said that the curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. The curtain separated the holiest place in the temple, the holy of holies, from everything else. It symbolized in that ripping that God was leaving the temple to be in the midst of his people. 
so that he could reclaim his people, so that he could reclaim his rebel race, his lost sheep, his lost coin, his lost child. And it also symbolized the days of the temple were coming to an end. The God of the universe so loved the world that he gave his only son so that he could change them and that they can change the world. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. It didn't make any sense to them. It just couldn't be the way that it all ended. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus died as he lived with his arms wide open. The cross took his life away, but his death took our sins away. And he hadn't even gotten to the good part yet because Jesus' resurrection took away all our excuses. But we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. So let's end today on this. Luke would tell you to follow because following makes all the difference. And Jesus' followers changed the world. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we invite you today, right now, to break in through this moment, Lord, and give us the courage to hold up our hands and say, I surrender to no other king. We now understand that we're not worth following. We can't even follow ourselves. We don't belong on the throne of our lives. Only you do. Lord, I would pray that we would every single day declare our dependence on you, our king. We thank you that the invitation stands and that you're there to receive us with open arms, just as you did on the afternoon that you hung there with your arms open wide. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.